This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Podcast on LGBTQ Plus Studies. I'm Shohini Chatterjee, a host of this channel, and I'll be in conversation today with Dr. Kate Kinney on their new book entitled Information Activism, A Queer History of Lesbian Media Technologies, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Dr. McKinney is professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, specializing in sexuality studies, media history, feminist media studies, and activist media. Their research examines the politics of information in queer social movements, focusing on how these movements struggle to provide vital access to information using new digital tools within conditions where that access is often precarious. Dr. McKinney's current research focuses on HIV AIDS and digital media and queer activist responses to early online content regulation. They were previously a media at McGill postdoctoral fellow at McGill University and a short postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Welcome to the New Books Network, Ed. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm absolutely thrilled um, to be in conversation with you today. Um, at the very outset, I'm curious to know how you came to explore um, information activism in the context of um, lesbian feminism, which is often seen as a kind of politics that is increasingly on the retreat. Um, but your book dissents against that and, and does so remarkably. So I'm intrigued to know how you decided to trace these um, critical interconnections between media technologies, creation of a purposive information infrastructure, and lesbian um, feminism. First, I'll say, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, You said that lesbian feminism is often uh, seen as a perspective or a politics that's on the retreat. And I think we could, you know, restate that in even uh, plainer terms is that lesbian feminism is is not sexy and is often thought of as as very kind of old fashioned um, and out of touch with politics in the present. Um, But I'm really interested in general in what we do with the legacies that feminism leaves us in the present, how we grapple with them, um, what uh, continues to have an effect, um, and uh, what's 
can be difficult or ugly about feminisms of the past, but also like what we might want to keep and what might be useful in a place from which to draw um, inspiration and to draw resources. So I was really interested in looking back at the ways that lesbian feminists used um, primarily new digital technologies uh, through the 70s, 80s, and and a little bit uh, the 1990s as well. And I wanted to go back to this moment when internet technologies and, and network technologies were sort of on the horizon, were a thing that feminists were thinking about, but not necessarily using yet. And I wanted to understand a kind of like history of the internet through um, lesbian feminism and through through lesbian feminist practices around uh, world making. Uh, and the reason I wanted to do that is because I think that we need different kinds of histories and stories about what communication and, and being in networks with others mean and have meant um, if we want to have models for the kinds of um, internets and practices of communication that, that we want to build and have um, today as feminists and as activists. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly important project. Um, you write that newsletters such as Matrices made information about lesbian history accessible to researchers and it relied on collaboration and resource dissemination to sustain community archives. Um, as someone who has been through the collection, could you tell us a little bit about the information activism that Matrices specifically was involved in and why it emerged as a critical component of your study? So newsletters are a really important communication technology in what's often called second wave feminism. And we're seeing a resurgence of newsletters in our present um, moment, right? So we've seen um, the uh, popularization of the platform Substack, for example, which has allowed all kinds of uh, writers and journalists to reach niche publics um, directly. And they call those uh, Substack bulletins newsletters um, they're digital. They're never printed, and they're you know kind of a lot flashier than uh, the lesbian feminist paper newsletters that I look at in my work. But I bring that up to point out that we're in a moment right now where there's this kind of drive to again use communication technologies to bypass mainstream media and to um, reach uh, niche publics in a more direct way. And lesbian feminists did precisely this with newsletters. So what they would do was uh, they would bring together um, kind of networks of subscribers who were interested in a particular topic, and they would uh, roll up their sleeves and design, uh, write, edit, print, stuff envelopes, and mail out um, newsletters to these publics. And and Matrices specifically is a publication that was designed to bring together Um, researchers, so both university researchers, but also community researchers who were working on questions around lesbian feminist history. So they talked about it as um, a lesbian research network. And they were really interested in the publication, um, not as a way of circulating articles, though there were articles, but as a way of bringing people into contact with each other. So uh, each issue would, for example, publish uh, bulletins on what each subscriber was working on and what kind of help or support they might need from other folks um, around the U.S. and Canada primarily who um, were also working on these topics. So you can think of this as like a way to reach other people who at that time you'd have no other way to really know about or get in touch with. 
um, to, to build a network and to build a, a kind of scholarly home for yourself um, in conditions where that work was uh, marginalized and minoritized um, and also made invisible by um, mainstream um, historical institutions like um, archives and textbooks. Mm-hmm. I got a sense from the newsletters you write about um, that they were bringing lesbian communities into being in a way, um, providing possibilities of care, ensuring that much of the isolation that comes from living a lesbian life is to an extent mitigated. Um, you explore how information and affect were in interaction to, to make this work possible. Do you think information activism was then also affective activism in, in revolutionary ways? One of the things I really wanted to do with this project was to figure out what else is going on when somebody seeks out information and finds that information. So uh, for a lot of the time I was working on this book, I I was a a postdoc in an information school at the University of Toronto. And I taught a class, a graduate course there. And I was thinking a lot about processes like information retrieval and and what information is and what information does. Um, And in my work and in the records I was looking at around lesbian feminist activism, um, information was always bigger than just answering a question or giving somebody the kind of practical um, facts that they had sought out. It was about bringing people into knowledge that there were others like them out in the world. Um, so that first, that kind of like connection with a community that one might become part of. We're talking again here about like a period of you know, intense isolation and and widespread homophobia in which um, lesbians were not um, able to live um, public lives in in the ways that um, we can now. And the second thing that information does, so first it brings people into community. And and the second thing it does is it it can often provide uh, forms of support that are life-saving. So we can think of that, for example, in relation to information about sexual health. Um, we can think of it in relationship to information about, um, for women at that time who wanted to have a child, um, the kind of, uh, legal protections that, uh, they might need to seek out, um, around adoption, for example, or protecting their rights as parents, um, or, uh, questions they might have about healthcare that they might not be able to get answered by, um, a doctor or a, a nurse, um, who, might not be supportive of their sexuality. So these were information networks that were kind of bringing people into the supports and foundations that one needs to um, live a life in dignity and to, to live a life um, that feels like joyful and in connection with with other people who are like you. Mm. I think building off of your um, pointer on um network communication being life-saving and life-affirming. You also write that a network communication uh, made possible by newsletters also focused on equity. Um, you write about Gail Rubin accepting donations from subscribers to Unit Foster's care needs. Um, could you talk a little bit about how awareness of equity shaped networks as an ideology and imagination um, which sustained communication and activism of this nature? 
Yeah, you referred to um, a story in the book about um, uh, one of the newsletters that I look at um, publishing a kind of request for people to send forms of care and financial support to an elder um, in the lesbian feminist research and literary world who was um, going into nursing care and didn't have a lot of money and, and needed support from the community. Um, and we're really used to seeing that in the present, especially in a kind of uh, COVID-19 moment, right? So um, care has been a, a huge um, concept um, that has been really important in feminist and uh, progressive communities. Um, and we've seen the popularization of the term mutual aid, which is like not a new term, it's an old term. It comes out of um, uh, BIPOC and feminist and trans organizing and the ways that um, folks who are marginalized from systems find ways to support for and care for each other. Um, and in my book, I show how those practices of care um, have a kind of history that's also tied to lesbian feminism and of um, trying to carve out spaces of um, support so that um, women can you know, uh, flourish in conditions that um, don't always provide. And you asked a question about um, equity, and I, I think uh, they might understand what they were doing as, as equity in contemporary terms, but I'm sometimes resistant to that term equity because of the ways that it has been um, like kind of taken up and co-opted by institutions like, for example, universities. Um, and that can sometimes drain it of, of meaning and the real resonances that um, it has for communities of struggle. So instead of equity, I like to think of um, it through the, the rubric of uh, care and concern and, and meeting people where they're at and, and where their needs are um, and trying to um, use information um, to, um, I guess, use information to um, show people that they're part of something uh, greater and that the institutions that don't love them back aren't the kind of be all and end all of what it means to to live and live well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it also makes me think if if collaboration is also a form of care. Um, you write that newsletters such as Matrices made collaboration possible between um, lesbian feminist researchers who were not afforded um, this privilege very often. You write that collaboration made researching lesbian feminism possible in many ways, um, notwithstanding limitations posed by time and space. Um, could you elaborate on the nature of this collaboration and, and reflect on how it made information an activist priority? Yeah, I think we live in a moment right now where many kinds of digital technologies have made collaboration feel easier or more ready to hand. Um, so I'm thinking of platforms, for example, like uh, Google Docs, which I use all the time to um, co-write with other people or to work on things with um, students. And of course, there's problems with these platforms. Uh, there's problems around surveillance, uh, for example. Um, and there's always going to be power structures and struggles in any process of collaboration and no communication technology will solve or address that. But all that is to say that it's much easier to find others who are interested in the same things as you and to connect with and work with them today than it was in um, the 1970s. 
I think that uh, the drive to um, collaborate with others is often about sharing information. Um, and that represents the ways that information, like I'm trying to document in the book, is like always about more than just finding things out. So collaboration is about um, bringing what you have to the table to share into connection with what others have who have a shared vision with you. And the sum is greater than the parts. An example in the book is uh, the lesbian telephone hotlines that I look at, uh, which brought together volunteers who came from uh, lots of different walks of life who brought their experiences of what it was like to be um, a lesbian with a disability or a black lesbian um, to folks with very different lives living in the same city who bring different understandings of what that's like to volunteering at a telephone hotline um, and answering questions that uh, people call in with that are about information, like what's a bar I can go to that's safe for me, uh, but are also about care and about bringing people into community and collaboration across differences, part of what can make an information service like that, uh, really like holistic and geared towards um, understanding uh, connection across difference, which is fundamental to um, lesbian feminist ways of being in the world at their best. Absolutely. Um, your work is attentive to citation practices in these publications. Um, do you think attention to the politics of citation um, changes the way we encounter queer and lesbian archives or just community archives in general? Yeah, I think a lot about citation, um, not just in relation to my book, but as somebody who teaches undergraduate and graduate students and as somebody who writes and like always wants to um, do better in my practices of citation. And I think a lot about um, what citation is for. I just read um, Catherine McKittrick's new book, Dear Science, which is uh, kind of like a black feminist science and technology studies text. Um, and it's also a lot about uh, methodology um, in, in the humanities. And she has a great chapter that's about citation and it's sort of like trying to make more complex conversations like um, uh, cite black women, which are conversations that, you know, are really important and great conversations. But she talks about how citation is more than just reading something on the surface and uh, making a reference to it in your work. It's about a kind of deep engagement and an openness to having your own epistemologies shift. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about uh, that chapter from her book lately when I think about citation. And in my book, we see um, lesbian feminists um, trying to kind of build a, a research culture and a way of making knowledge together um, that is collaborative and that uh, acknowledges uh, work and lineages. Uh, but they also have missteps sometimes, right? So um, I look at an example in the book uh, where um, a community of newsletter readers contributed to a survey about lesbian life that was um, done by a writer and activist named Carla J. Uh, and it was published as, as a book, the results of the survey. But Carla J's um, publisher, unbeknownst to her, had an excerpt from the book published in Penthouse, which was 
and is um, a porn magazine aimed uh, primarily at straight men. Uh, and so folks who had participated in this survey were really unhappy to be cited in a place um, like Penthouse. So citation is also like a field of struggle around who we want to be in dialogue with and how we want our work and the heart that we put into our work um, taken up. And we can look back to these this kind of history that I'm looking at in the book to, to understand that, not just as a, a contemporary problem, but as a, a problem that um, is inflected differently over time by different kind of communication networks and media technologies. Mm-hmm. I'm also intrigued by the participatory nature of the archives, such as the Lesbian Horse Story archives, um, which you contend invited readers into information activism. Um, do you think participatory archiving practices bridged the information gap between urban and rural lesbian lives? I mean, that was certainly part of the work that the Lesbian History Archives was trying to do in the 1970s and 80s and continues to try to do. So the Lesbian History Archives is a community archives located in um, Brooklyn, which is a borough of uh, New York City. And because of the location of this archives, there's a sort of geographical bias to um, the Northeast and to life in cities in the archives. And, And the women running the archives have always been very aware of this and they've tried to address that urban northeastern bias um, through really conscientious practices about how they gather information. I'll give an example of one way that they do this is by having um, regional networks of what they called clippers. And what that meant was they had women um, positioned all over different parts of the U.S., including rural areas who would clip um, materials from local lesbian and feminist newsletters and more mainstream publications and mail them into the Lesbian Herster archives. And archivists at the Lesbian Herster archives would follow these clippings away by subject. And the idea was that having those regional clippers in rural places or places that were less represented in um, archives or in lesbian feminist research uh, would kind of remediate what the archive was becoming as it was unfolding and as it was growing. So a kind of conscientious attempt to use collaborative practices of information gathering to address um, bias and a problem in representation. I was also interested in the information economies, as you put it, um, sustained by lesbian telephone hotlines, such as New York's The Lesbian Switchboard and Toronto's um, lesbian phone line, which created an archive of call logs. Um, how do you think the archiving practices followed by them influenced um, the nature of information activism and impacted community archives? I have a chapter in the book that's all about uh, lesbian telephone hotlines. And in that chapter, I look at a couple hotlines, but I look most closely at New York City's lesbian switchboard. And part of the reason why that forms such a central case study in the book is because their archive is so full. So the volunteers who operated the phones at that telephone hotline kept meticulous logs of every single phone call that they made on every single volunteer shift. It described what time the call came in, um, the caller's identity, what their query was, and how the um, volunteer operator responded to that query. So there's like a significant amount of detail and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of call logs, you know, gathered over a quarter of a century of work um, at this hotline. Whereas some of the other hotlines that I mentioned more briefly in the chapter, like Toronto's lesbian phone line, didn't keep those kinds of records in archives. So it's harder to 
um, study them in that kind of detail today. And of course, the call logs, as I discuss, are still partial records, right? They're one operator's perspective or reflection on what a call meant. Uh, they're not a recording of that call. And so as researchers, we have to approach them kind of with that um, care and awareness of, of what they are and what they might represent. But they're still a really full record. Part of your question was about how these kinds of processes of documentation um, from late 20th century activist groups shape community archiving. And Lesbian feminists in the 1970s and 1980s were like very aware of the work they were doing as in need of documentation and record keeping. So folks who are doing uh, work related at all to serving lesbian feminist communities are aware of organizations like the Lesbian History Archives, which were telling women that our histories are underdocumented and nobody is going to address that but us. So this is a time period where people start to keep a lot of records of the work that they're doing. And it coincides with a period where it becomes um, easier and cheaper to keep paper records. So the cost of paper has gone down quite a bit by the 1970s. And by the 1980s, people start to have more ready access to printers at their workplaces or even moving into the late 80s and early 90s in their homes. Um, so there's more of an ability to uh, print and keep things. Um, and that's a kind of interesting technical change and economic change that also affects and shapes um, community archives today and what's in them. You've also been to various community archives in New York, in Toronto, which makes me want to ask, um, how do you think the archives uh, influenced your research and how can queer ways of engaging with archives alter practices of knowledge building um, for researchers? Yeah, in my career, I've done research at lots of different kinds of archives. So as you mentioned, I've done a lot of work at different kinds of community archives in different places. And they're different from each other, but LGBTQ plus community archives also have lots of things in common. Uh, they're often in uh, domestic spaces um, or warm feeling institutional spaces. They're usually uh, at least partly, sometimes entirely run by volunteers. And they usually have really open policies about access. So uh, at the Lesbian Her Story Archives, for example, you are um, permitted to bring down more than one collection at a time and to uh, surface connections across them. I've also done lots of research at, um, you know, uh, fancy uh, institutional archives, like uh, the New York Public Library's Archives and Manuscripts Division, for example. And at those places, you have to show credentials, you have to make an appointment in advance of your visit. Um, you have to request materials a few days before you come so that they can be brought in from offsite and prepared for you. So there's sort of more layers in between the researcher and the material. And I think that um, can, to some extent, shape what we're able to, to surface um, when we do archival research. The sort of messier practices that are often at place at community archives, I think, are part of what make possible those kinds of queer moments of encounter, those like delightful um, uh, moments of like finding a thing that you didn't expect to find that's truly weird and, and wonderful. Um, a kind of celebration of the ephemeral in community archives uh, that sometimes facilitates um, those moments and encounters. 
And that's uh, really special. And it's what makes possible work like my book and, and other projects like it. Absolutely. Um, in your book, uh, book, you bring about um, bring out the intersectional nature of information activism practiced by the lesbian feminist hotlines um, that um, you've been talking about, even though they were limited in their understanding of intersectionality at the time. Um, how do you understand this limitation and its implications for lesbian feminism as well as um, information activism? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I think the place where I started this project from was a place of believing that lesbian feminisms in the past were very, very white and transphobic and transmisogynist. So that's, that's the place that I began from. Um, and to some extent, and in some cases, those things are true, but it really depends who's asking the question and how you frame it. So you could also, and, and many people have written the history of lesbian feminism as centered around uh, women of color, right? So that would uh, that already shifts um, the stories we tell about lesbian feminism and its white center. Um, you can displace the white center by um, looking at different archives and asking different questions. Uh, I was also taken up as I was working on this book by um, trans studies and trans feminist work that was questioning uh, why we repeat and tell these kind of monolithic stories about lesbian feminism as transphobic. And so I wanted to bring uh, more nuance to my analysis. Um, so one of the ways I did that to stick with the example of the telephone hotline was to look at um, how they were understanding and thinking about the identities of people who volunteered at the hotline and how they were trying to match callers with um, hotline operators who had experiences that were like theirs. So it was very important, for example, for the lesbian switchboard to have um, women of color answering the phones um, as often as possible um, so that callers who called in with questions that were related not just to their sexuality, but their sexuality as it intersects with their race could speak to somebody who understood in a deep way what it was that they were talking about. And also at that telephone hotline, I wanted to nuance how um, transphobia and transmisogyny and also trans inclusion happens, practically speaking, at an organization through the provision of information or the denial of information. And so that meant looking really closely at those call logs I mentioned before um, to see how transgender callers are uh, represented in them. And what I learned was the organization in practice and as policy had um, you know, policies I would describe as trans exclusionary and transphobic. But in practice, there were lots of hotline operators who were um, happy to talk to and help transgender callers, whether those were um, trans men who had identified as lesbians or continued to identify as lesbians, or trans women who identified as lesbians, or people whose gender identities um, were somewhere in between or perhaps not labeled yet. So you see a lot of efforts to answer those calls and to meet them um, with respect and dignity. Um, and so in the book, uh, I really want to contribute to the models that we have in critical historiography for um, trying to use the archive to think about why we tell the stories we tell about feminist history and what we might understand differently if we approached 
our questions in other ways. Hmm. You write about indexing also at length and in a very nuanced manner. And I wondered while going through that chapter if, if lesbian feminist indexing generates a politics of its own. And if it does, what complexities do you think it brings to lesbian archives and information activism? Yeah, I think it's helpful first to explain to listeners what um, what I mean when I talk about indexing. So indexes could take many forms. The, the most common would be the index in a back of a book, which calls out all of the most important subjects in that book and tells you what page um, in the book you can find discussion of those subjects. Um, and so the project that I look at most closely in the book is called the Lesbian Periodicals Index. And what that project tried to do is take a, a massive collection of lesbian feminist newsletters and index all of the content in those newsletters by subject. And what they created was this big reference text that had a list of hundreds of subject headings that were important to lesbians. And you could open up this book and turn to a subject that interested you. Um, so for example, um, Chicana lesbians is, is a subject that I discuss a little bit in the book. And you could find a mention of uh, every single discussion of Chicana lesbians in uh, this corpus of periodicals that had been indexed. So you could try and find those issues in your local archives um, and connect with information that was relevant to you, that was important to you. And this is, of course, a political process because um, it involves a couple of uh, really um, political choices. First is what subjects count in the first place as being important to lesbians? Like what should these hundred subject headings in this book be? That's contentious. It mm, requires the volunteers working on this project to uh, figure out what they think mattered to the community that they want to serve. And the second way this process is political is it involves interpreting um, all of the articles and images and poems in these newsletters and assigning subject headings to them. So it means attributing meaning or a category to someone else's work. Um, and you can try and do that with care, but at the end of the day, categorization is often a process that um, simplifies and it's a process even that can be um, violent. And so the women at this project, um, these indexers, they try to move with as much care as possible. And in the book, I talk about how one of the ways that they do that is through um, a really slow um, and painstaking but enthusiastic process of revision. So they were always willing to redo their indexing um, to make changes when they discovered something better, something more accurate um, to the materials that they were trying to, to categorize. And I talk about how that process of uh, revision is tied up with um, how these women thought about and imagined what computing might bring to their work. So we think of computing as making revision easier. It's much faster to make changes to Word document than it is to make changes to something that you've written by hand. If any of us ever even do that anymore. Uh, and so these women too were imagining the, the coming age of computing as it might make their lesbian feminist politics of uh, revision um, easier to carry out. So computing gets kind of like mapped onto lesbian feminist ideals about um, self-description and representation. Um, the fourth uh, chapter of your book deals with feminist digitization practices uh, at the Lesbian Horse Story Archives. 
You write that the improvisational approach that the archives took to digitization has consequences for how the archives are um, going to be encountered in the future. Um, to my mind, there's a kind of lesbian feminist intentionality that guides processes of what remains and what goes. Um, how do you think this changes the nature of community archives when they're increasingly being um, digitized in the 21st century? Well, I think more and more so archival research is something that we do online. So archival research is one of the most significant methods that I use in my work. And because of COVID, I haven't been in a physical archive in you know two years. I'm continuing to do my work, but using digital collections. And what that means is my work is shaped by what is available online. So what somebody has deemed to be significant enough to digitize and provide access to. And that's a process of remediating and shaping archives and shaping historical encounters. And it's not that those bricks and mortar archives with more obscure materials don't continue to exist. They do, but they become more difficult to access um, and less convenient to access. And I think that is going to uh, more and more so shape um, the kind of uh, stories that we have available to tell. Um, and for me as a media historian, I, I think of that as a media question. So I think of um, how digital archives are assembled, how choices around selection and deselection are made. Um, and I think in really practical ways about um, the labor of archivists and community archivists that, that goes into this uh, work. The other side of it is more um, grassroots uh, amateur um, archiving, and I'm putting archiving in, in scare quotes, that takes place on social media platforms uh, like Instagram. I talk about Instagram a little bit in the conclusion of the book. Um, so here we see uh, community members drawing on digitized collections, uh, posting them on their Instagram platforms and trying to share little pieces of uh, queer history with um, their followers. And that's also a process of remediation. And so it can be a positive one too. So we can see, for example, uh, work by folks running these sort of accounts to um, be more diverse in how they represent lesbian feminist history. So to seek out, for example, uh, records related to the leadership of women of color in lesbian feminist activism. Um, and so I think these processes of revisiting archives using digital media can also be uh, positive ones. And uh, it's, it's complex to think about. And I think it reminds us that in general, in our lives, in our worlds, more and more of our interactions with materials and also each other take place um, in online spaces. So you and I are having this, this conversation right now uh, using the internet. Uh, and so to think about the conditions of possibility that different platforms allow for or don't allow for and to always be aware of how those um, uh, shape the, the stories that we have available to us. Mm -hmm. I um, want to um, stay on the the topic of social media spaces and remediation, as you as you mentioned, um, in on on Instagram and uh, the possibilities that it um, generates. Um, it it does create many possibilities, but it also hinders them in specific uh, ways, owing to data regulation and the profit motives 
of these platforms, which you mentioned in your book. Um, could you expand a little on how engagement with these archives and lesbian history um, shapes information activism in the present and the possibilities it holds for the future? Yeah, I, I think uh, all the critiques that you bring up briefly are, are really important. And uh, I teach communication studies students who are very concerned about these problems and also like very enmeshed in living them out. Um, so my students know Instagram as um, a platform that can be quite toxic, not just as young people who are trained to question the ownership structures and profit motives of these platforms, but also as people who are most affected by the kinds of body shaming and censorship practices and aspirational lifestyle economies that are um, uh, supported by these platforms. So there's lots of things about them that are really, really bad and really, really toxic. Um, And I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in the ways that they can democratize access to to history. Uh, And I think that there is um, something hopeful about that. Uh, I wish that we had um, more access to, uh, I wish that it was becoming easier for um, community groups to create their own uh, digital spaces and digital archives instead of becoming more technically opaque and more expensive. Um, I wish that uh, we still had uh, uh, more of a like roll up your sleeves, grassroot feeling of what um, online space might be for queer people. And um, I'm hopeful that that's something that we can still um, build. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I share that. Um, thank you for this very enriching conversation, Kate. Um, I, I realize we have taken a lot of your time already, but before we let you go, would you like to tell us uh, a little bit about what you're currently working on? Sure. I'm working on a, a couple projects uh, right now. I'm uh, working on a new book uh, called The Sex Lives of Data. And in that book, I'm looking at the ways that concepts from sexuality studies and intimacy can help us to think about various um, digital technologies. So I'll give a really quick example. I want to think about how the concept of attachment that comes out of um, psychoanalytic and affect theory can help us think about things like email attachments. And it sounds a bit cute right off the bat, but I think that we need these sort of creative theoretical models to um, think our way outside of the um, as Jose Munoz says, quagmire of the present. Um, and so that's the work I'm doing that's more long-term. Uh, I also have a project uh, with my colleague Dylan Mulvin at the London School of Economics um, that's looking at the relationship between AIDS activism and the early internet. And we're trying to write a queer and disability studies-oriented history of um, the way online technologies are taken up to share information about HIV and AIDS in the 1990s. So they're both projects I'm really um, enjoying working on and that I can bring research assistance into for the first time, uh, which um, has been uh, really joyful for me. I'm going to look out for them and I'll probably never stop engaging with your scholarship. Um, Thank you very much for giving us so much to think about and work towards. Um, I find your work innovative and critical in um, uncovering histories that are often rendered um, invisible. 
I am sure many lesbian and queer researchers are going to fall back um, on your work as I will um, to to th- uh, think through our own ideas um, about what it means to encounter and, and engage with, with archives, what it means to form communities of care and how a capacious understanding of fem- uh, feminism evolves through archivist um, and activist practices um, in the everyday. Thank you very much um, for your Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.